What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. You know, there's Mm -hmm. lots of ways to resist. You can be Colin Kaepernick and you can kneel down. You can run for office, a la AOC. You can um, march in the streets. And that among the many tools in the toolkit are surprisingly, you know, shutting the fuck up. That that mm-hmm. has a weird, there's a, it's like, oh, that's interesting. Being silent, if, if done well and in the rather witty way that Marshawn does it, has this weird cultural power and that's that's so interesting welcome to the edge of sports podcast i'm dave zyron this week we talked to filmmaker david shields about his new project lynch a history about iconoclastic running back slash legend marshawn lynch also, I've got some choice words about the Toronto Raptors. Just stand up and just sit your ass down awards. Got a little bit of Kaepernick watch and more. But first, let's talk to David Shields. What, what attracted you to the story of Marshawn Lynch? Well, I mean, you know, kind of the obvious, but, you know, first... I am, as I think that you are, I'm a sports fan, you know, that, you know, my dad was a sports writer. I was, a, you know, a mediocre to decent high school athlete. I've written some books on sports. And, you know, part of, of my DNA is, um, you know, I'm like a quasi-athlete and a sports fan. So part of me was just a fan of Marshawn Lynch, you know, for about five years, the Seahawks were a really interesting team. And Marshawn Lynch was obviously a crucial part of that. So part of it was simply, I was a fan of him as a player. And then it quickly, of course, pivoted into a fascination with and admiration of his amazing use of, what would you call it? A kind of Bartleby-esque silence. Do you remember that that Mm -hmm. Melville novella? I would prefer not to, you know, in Bartleby, the Scrivener, 
And, you know, I just got so interested in how Marshawn Lynch resisted media entreaties. And, you know, and previous books I've done, I, I did a book on the Sonics 20 years ago, which which really focused on Gary Payton's transgressive language in the Sonics uh, 20 years ago. And then I've also have, have done a book on Ichiro Suzuki on Ichiro's sort of brilliant batting away of reporters sort of banalizing questions. So I feel like the Lynch film is the third part of this sort of quasi trilogy in which I'm interested in athletes and their sort of disruption of American media and sports cliches. And Peyton obviously did it with trash talking, Ichiro with sort of uh, feigned incomprehension and intentional uh deconstruction of American sports cliches and obviously Marshawn Lynch with silence. And I just got more and more interested in, you might call it the poetry and power of Marshawn Lynch's silence. There are many ways to resist, to protest, to um, defy. And I came to realize how powerful Marshawn's silence is. Yeah, definitely. And you make that really clear in the film, the the transgressive aspects of his interactions or lack of interactions with the media. Now, (laughs) watching the film, I mean, Marshawn Lynch really does come across like like a folk hero because he plays by no one's rules but his own. Like he seems like someone who's truly free when so many athletes feel so constricted uh, because of all sorts of reasons. Now, I wanted to ask you, in terms of Marshawn and his life, where do you think that comes from? Because it is so rare. I know. I think, well, first of all, you've summarized the film awfully well. I mean, and awfully concisely. There's this wonderful line of Albert Camus, which we wanted to get in, into the film, where he says, the only way, let's see, I always sort of muddle the quote, but basically says something like, The only way to deal with an unjust society is to be so absolutely free that that your very existence is an act of rebellion, Mm. which is, you know, again, the only way to deal with an unjust society is to be so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I mean, my God, that's the whole movie, isn't it? In the sense that, you know, first of all, I would argue no one is absolutely free. You know, that we all in, let's say, America exists within a capitalist system. Excuse me. And Marshawn Lynch definitely needs and wants to cash out during his relatively brief window of economic opportunity. So, you know, he'll take commercials or he'll allow his his body to be punished. But, you know, so I think that is the core of the movie as to where that that comes from. A part of the film, which I feel probably happiest with or proudest of, is the way in which we trace the origins of Lynch's silence. You know, the opening, the film is really built in in five chapters, which really trace, you could call it almost the sounds of silence, from the origin of Lynch's silence to kind of the deepening of Lynch's silence in Buffalo, to the silence becoming more public and sort of viral in Seattle, and then becoming, I would say, sort of politicized 
then weaponized toward the end of Seattle, and then finally back in Oakland, I feel like th there's a sense in which Lynch is handing on as legacy that silence to the next generation of young African-American athletes. So the origin of, of Lynch's silence are many, but I think a core is that he came from Oakland. He, you know, as anyone who knows anything about Marshawn Lynch, his, you know, he bleeds Oakland, you know, all things Oakland. He was formed in Oakland and he's unbelievably loyal to his hometown. And Oakland is the progenitor, as the film makes clear, of an amazing number of very prophetic troublemakers from mm -hmm. Gertrude Stein and Jack London to Bill Russell and Clint Eastwood and Kurt um, Flood. Kurt Flood, my God, to um, Alice Walker, to Angela Davis, the Black Panthers were born there, the first African-American studies department at Merritt College. Harry Edwards is from the East Bay, um, the, the um, Oakland Raiders, the Hells Angels. There's a whole, I mean, even Clint Eastwood went to Marshawn Lynch's high school, Oakland Tech. And there's a real tradition of what would we call it, sort of fuck you attitude. I mean, it is a serious thing in Oakland because it's whether it's in the shadow of Berkeley, in the shadow of San Francisco, in, in a way the shadow of Los Angeles, that Oakland has always felt like the, um, you know, the ignored stepsister and partly for racial, economic, cultural reasons. And even now that Marshawn is furious that, you know, the, the, the Golden State Warriors are moving to San Francisco, the Oakland Raiders are moving to Vegas, and he's trying to prevent the Oakland A's from also leaving. And he's actually actively buying up property right now to try to prevent the complete, what would you call it, gentrification and yuppification of, of Oakland. So mm -hmm. I think Oakland hugely formed him. And I think it's not just Oakland as anger and as fury, but also you know, the poetics of of not talking. I mean, think of Bill of Bill Russell, how he would stroll out to center court. You know, I'm a, quite a bit older than than you are, a full generation or so older. But I don't know if you've seen clips of the way that Russell would come out to center court at Boston sure, Garden. Of and, you know, it's a very powerful image and very Marshawn like. And again, Russell went to McClyman's High School in Oakland and um. You know, I think there's a huge Oakland um, tradition of not speaking in a way the language of, uh, let's be honest, you know, the white media sports complex or the white cultural complex, whether that's holding a gun at the Black Panthers, riding a motorcycle with the Hells Angels or what have you. And then I think a second or, factor. Oh, if I could just I'm, jump I'm sorry, in. Dave. Oh, no, I just want sure, to jump in do. because my, my, my listeners might be wondering, like, uh, wait a minute, what, what does Clint Eastwood have to do with this? And you have this great clip in the film, in the interview, where he talks about the value of not speaking. It's such a great clip, and it makes you think of Marshawn. <laughs> totally, totally. I mean, I, that when we found that, we you know, that we spent a week celebrating when we found that clip. Because, you know, the Clint Eastwood's politics, you know, are, are right wing, as most people know. He's, uh, you know, he's, uh, you know, supported Trump, et cetera. But 30, 40 years ago, when he was first fashioning his uh, his brand, yeah, his anti-hero thing, 
he was he was amazingly eloquent and thoughtful in image. this brief yeah. clip in which he he really understands the ways in which when someone is silent that we you know they seem mysterious they seem magisterial and they seem to have a lot of attitude the moment that you explain stuff and i think the writers know this you know faulkner say would pretend not you know, he said, oh, I'm just a country farmer. I'm just writing things, you know, and I think creative artists for centuries have refused the entreaties of reporters who want them to explain things. And so I think Eastwood is definitely part of it, that we have a whole range of clips of Oakland people, even, um, you know, Gertrude Stein saying, you know, there is no there there. But And then I think a big factor in Marchand's refusal to speak nonsense is his father, uh, you know, battled various problems, was in and out of prison. The Marchand ended up taking, you know, he ended up removing his father's name. And he was, he was very aware of his father um, always promising, oh yeah, I'll definitely be there tomorrow, Marchand, and we'll spend the weekend together. And I think he really came to hate lying language, whether it was from a reporter who pretended to be nice to him in the locker room and then sold him out in the column the following day, the way he felt in Buffalo, or his dad, as opposed to his steadfast, his steadfast mom, who was just has been this amazing rock to him. He really came to despise, I believe, again, I don't mean to speak for him, but he really came to despise his father's uh meaningless reassurances. And I think he really, there's something very deep in his soul, quite admirable, in which he refuses to use language as an act of bad faith. You know, if I'm going to say something, I'm going to try really hard to have it be at least my truth. So I think those are two huge factors. Mm. Now, it's so interesting. I, I actually, just so you know, I had in my notes that if Marshawn is the number one character in the film, of course, number two is the city of Oakland. And you just explained exactly. why that's the case. Thank, yeah, no, Oakland, because Oakland's the first chapter and it's the last chapter. Yep. And it's it's almost too perfect where it's the prodigal son returneth, which mm -hmm. is sort of, he was born in Oakland, he goes to Buffalo, and things get sadder and more complicated. He comes back to the West Coast. Things work in Seattle for a while. Then they kind of come undone for interesting, at least quasi-racial and political and cultural reasons. And then here he is now as still a relatively young man of 33 back in Oakland and, you know, toward the very end of his career. And then suddenly Oakland now, you know, in, in many ways is still the site of resistance, sort of vis-a-vis -vis Trump, Black Lives Matter, the whole renaissance of Oakland film, and, you know, the whole series of, of films of late coming out of Oakland, and in a way, I think of mm -hmm. our film as being not unconnected to that. To films like Sorry to Bother You, and... Precisely. Um, and what's the other um, one? Something Blind Spotting. Spotting. Blind Spotting. Yeah, blind, that's right. Yeah. And, That's right. and also there's a film coming out, too, which which Danny Glover also is part of called um, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, which is coming out shortly. And I think Glover both co-produced and I think has a role in that film. And Glover, of course, produced your film. He's the executive, executive producer, producer of it. Executive yeah. producer of yeah. the film. Uh, what, how right. was uh, Danny Glover? How did he hear about the project? What, why did he want to be involved? 
Well, you know, he's he's you know he's that we're obviously thrilled that he's part of the of the crew. He, I, I know him from a project I was working on with him, Dave, about um, that we're still working on. I fascinated with um, something that happened historically during toward the end of the Cold War, or at least the middle of the Cold War. The state, the U.S. State Department sent a series of jazz musicians, including including Louis Armstrong, to Africa as a sort of goodwill or a sort of um, cultural, an attempt to rebut the Russians' attempts to frame and phrase America as a land of banality and venality and racism. And so uh, the U.S. State Department sent Dizzy Gillespie and Dave Brubeck and Louis Armstrong to um, to uh, the Middle East, to Europe, to Africa, uh, as the sort of jazz ambassadors. And so I am working on a fact-based script about Louis Armstrong and Dizzy Gillespie being sent to uh, to West Africa uh, in the late fifties. Wow. And and Danny Glover and I, Danny and I met in LA over that project that we pitched a version of it to various production companies and we're still working on that. So that we met there through that and, uh, uh, and that we stayed in touch and, you know, he is, he's become, you know, he, first of all, he's a political activist, mm-hmm. as you probably know, he lives in the Bay area. He's a movie star and he's very, and he's also a football fan and, you know, he, he played high school football and has story, amazing stories about O.J. Simpson running right over him during a high school football game. That he he played high school football in San Francisco, and that was the last game he played when O.J. just left, um, you know, a cl- mm-hmm. a, a cleat tracks over over Danny's face, and he said, "That's that's my last game of football." So um, anyway, Danny uh, Danny's coming up to to Seattle uh, tomorrow actually for the premiere. So yeah, that that's how. How Danny got involved. That's fantastic. Um, I whoa, the premiere is in Seattle, uh, just coming yeah, up. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah, the world premieres in Seattle on Monday at the Seattle International Film Festival. That we thought that that was the proper. Holy crap! Um, yeah, are, are there still seats? I mean, should I put the word out? Is this? Uh, the, uh, the, fr- the film would be, I have, I, have a, I have a ton of friends in Seattle and this film would be so much fun to watch in a collective environment. Totally. I, I, am really eager. Um, um, Kenny Maine from ESPN, who you, yep. who you may know, he's, he's pretty close to Lynch. Kenny Maine is going to interview Danny, uh, and me after the film. And oh, then, man. um, and then on Wednesday, Kurt Streeter from the New York times is going to interview me. But, um, it's a bit of a brag fest that the third and fifth have been sold out. And so the Seattle International Film Festival created a third spot, which they're just opening up. They've opened up a third showing on June 9th on Sunday. So if your pals in or around Seattle wanted to come to the show, they are creating a, a third screening on, on June 9th. Wow. So let's, uh, we've been talking around it. I want to talk to you about the movie itself. Um, I want people to see the movie. I don't want to give away too much in the movie. Right. But I, I, I don't think it does too much to talk about uh, the form. And you made a decision to make this film entirely in montage. I mean, not with Spock, with, you know, typical film like this has talking heads speaking about the importance of Marshawn. 
Right. Instead, you do yours in a narrative that's basically a series of clips, some very well-known, some extremely not well-known, some pulled right out of history, some pulled out of children's books. I mean, it's quite (laughs) a pastiche. And I wanted to know why, I mean, I could see making the decision, I'm going to do a film about Marshawn Lynch. And but why did you make the decision to go away from the more typical uh, Ken Burnsian, if you will, uh, talking heads model and going instead towards this, I thought, very daring, almost 1960s style form of filmmaking? I mean, God, there's so much there to unpack. This one guy, I think the guy who programmed it at the Seattle Film Festival used the term, which I'm, you know, it was awfully awfully. He called it. Um, Godardian. Good, you know, I was sort of, going to, but I thought it would be too pretentious. No, I, I have I, I Godardian know. in my notes. <laughs> we're all happy with pretension here. That um, yeah, I mean, I thought like, yeah, exactly. I mean, I haven't rewatched Godard for a while, but I remember loving, you know, Breathless and, and Weekend. I mean, those are hugely influential films for me, as they are for anyone. So, um, but um, there's so many reasons as to how and why the film became the form. It does. The first one is the most obvious is that we approached Marshawn four years ago and said, hey, you know, we that, you know, we're, that we're making this film. Would you like to be part of it? And, you know, in a you know very Lynchian way, he said, you know, you guys go ahead and make your film. I won't stop it, but I won't be part of it either. So in a way, it's sort of perfect that he he was silent toward us as well. So given the fact that we weren't going to have direct access to Marshawn Lynch, that we had to decide what to do. And early on, a member of our team, I think it was the sort of the lead sort of film editor and sort of almost the co-creator of the film, because so much of this film is in the editing, James Nugent, who said, you know, we have to make the film never feel like television. You know, it could never feel in our view. I mean, Ken Burns, whose work I respect and admire, it seemed to me exactly wrong for this kind of film. That we wanted to make it, that we decided that we did not want to make it like a very good, you know, 30 for 30 episode. That wasn't our exact model in the sense that that we wanted it to feel more like YouTube folk art was the way we kept on thinking of it. That, you know, a, you know, a film ripped from the web so that our model was that this may sound pretentious in a different way that, that we wanted the film to feel like a Marshawn Lynch run compressed, concise, having velocity, having violent swings and shifts and surprises and pivots. And then the, once we decided that, that we weren't going to get to Marshawn anyway, and yes, that we could ask to talk to Earl Thomas or Michael Bennett, who, uh, who, who, that you co-wrote a book with, or, or Richard Sherman, or, or whoever. But it seemed to me, without Marshawn's direct participation, doing the workaround seemed a little beside the point. And then, frankly, fair use concerns came to be that we have we, we had 700 clips in 84 minutes. So I can't quite do the math off the top of my head, but I think we have, you know, basically, what would that be? About 10 clips per per minute, I think, is about the math on that, or even 12, or something like that. So basically, the idea in in fair use is, you know, yes, there might be a wonderful five-minute sequence of Marshawn Lynch talking in the locker room, or perhaps not talking, but, you know, I had my uh, 
my fair use lawyer on speed dial the whole time of the film. And, you know, that we, we could only use very brief clips, you know, 15 seconds at the very longest. So Marshawn not participating, wanting the film to feel kind of down and, and dirty, and then and wanting the film to feel like a Marshawn Lynch run. And also, frankly, I don't know if you know some of my other books like Reality Hunger or Manifesto or, or some of, of my other books have a very strong collagistic and kaleidoscopic and sort of montage feel. That's just sort of my aesthetic. So those all things combined. I mean, did you struggle with the sort of um, rapid fire? I loved it. (laughs) Unfortunately, I feel like some of it might be a product of the age in which we live in with the expectation of quick cuts to keep one's attention. And I'd hate to think I'm losing my ability to watch the kind of documentary that has the long takes and the long interviews. I know what you mean. But pushing that to the side, there still is the question of what clips one chooses to have these kinds of rapid-fire type films. And I thought the interspersing of people like James Baldwin and Angela Davis, interviews with Kurt Flood and Howard Cosell... I mean, and then Marshawn Lynch um, in that kind of continuum, in that very transgressive continuum. I mean, I was I was transfixed. I was absolutely. Thank transfixed. you so much. Well, obviously that you're, you know, I could hardly imagine a more perfect audience for the film than you because you know <laughs> it was in my sweet um, spot. I mean, <laughs> exactly. I mean, you know, at at you know that my mom, you know, that I, I, I grew up on the West Coast and my mom wrote for, she was the West Coast correspondent for the Nation magazine, <laughs> you know, and that, um, you know, that my dad was a sports writer and, you know, that, um, that you and I have many interesting over- overlaps in our interest in sports and race and history and politics and even the sort of interesting intersection, I think, of Jewish culture and mm-hmm. African-American culture I, I'm interested in as well and I often write about. So, um, you know, that um, I know what you mean. I mean, I, I worry that I, I mean, I just, I don't know. Um, I'm interested in books and films that, um, as my students say, they get rid of all of the boring parts and that, you know, basically I'm interested in, you know, this film is very short. At one point it was, um, you know, six hours long that we had, you know, you know, tens of hours of, of footage. And the whole challenge was to get, you know, there's all, there was one funny review of the film that said, you know, I really love this movie, but I just wish they had in- included the clip of Gronk and um, Marshawn playing Mortal Kombat video on, on Conan, you know, it's like, okay, you know, like you can't, the point to me, was never to include every cool clip of Marshawn Lynch being funny on television, but it was more which clips did we need to build an argument about Marshawn Lynch using silence as a form of protest or phrased a different way, how does Marshawn try to remain true to himself in a capitalist racist society that he's trying to both oppose and exploit. So if we had some incredible clip and it would just kill us not to use it, but we think, you know, this other clip is already establishing that particular point. And then it was 
really crucial that the film not be our father's biopic and not be our father's sports pick. And that was the point of using everything from quotes from Herman Melville yep. to, you know, clips of Little Boosie on a hip hop station to, um, you know, clips of um, of lynchings from the 1920s. And that really, I feel like, I don't know, I have I have perhaps a skewed perspective from Seattle, but I feel like the Marshawn Lynch story is relatively well known nationally at least, you know, pretty well known. And so I feel like the culture does not need, you know, there's, there have been things on, you know, Showtime, I think, and 30 and um, ESPN, I think, and, you know, the general contours of Marshawn Lynch's life and his um, refusenik attitude sort of vis-a-vis -vis the press, those are relatively known tropes in the culture. And the whole challenge of the film was to try and through you know all these juxtapositions show the very deep cultural roots of that and the huge i think political resonance of it you know there's mm -hmm. a lots of ways to resist you can be colin kaepernick and you can kneel down you can run for office a la aoc you can um march in the streets and that among the many tools in the toolkit are surprisingly, you know, shutting the fuck up. That that mm -hmm. has a weird. There's a. It's like, oh, that's interesting. Being silent, if if done well and in the rather witty way that Marshawn does it, has this weird cultural power, and that's that's so interesting. Wow, uh, here talking with David Shields, filmmaker of uh, this new project that's about to. I think, uh, blow up. I think people are going to love this. It's called Lynch, A History, about the iconoclastic running back slash legend Marshawn Lynch. I did want to ask you about this running motif in the film about the cat in the hat. Can you speak about the cat in the hat, Dr. Seuss's <laughs> cat in the hat, and why uh -huh. that book and that character makes you think of Marshawn Lynch? Well, I mean, I know what you mean, that we, that we went back and forth on that you know that basically um at one point in the film when he is uh, a student at at uc berkeley and he's starring in a game and the way that these broadcasts go they do a little mini profile of a star player as the play is about to start or or whatever and they uh they ask him what his favorite book is and that it flashes on the screen that his favorite book is cat in the hat and they um announcers in that typical way they sort of in a jocular way go oh what's underneath that hat marshawn or something like that and they don't do anything with it and i think there's a general feeling i go ha ha here's a student at uc berkeley who's say a sophomore you know and instead of of naming you know Thucydides, the, the history of the Peloponnesian War, um, Marchand says Cat in the Hat, which is a kid's book. And, you know, it's a much-loved kid's book. And, you know, I certainly read that book a million times to my daughter when she was a kid. And it, it's an unbelievably great book. And it is the handbook for rebellion. It is. And so, like, I said, oh, my God, when I read this book again, you know, I pulled it off the shelves, you know, hidden with Natalie's, you know, old toys somewhere in the attic of our house. 
it was like, my God, this book is not only, I mean, that Marchand is not only the cat in the hat in the sense that he's a disruptive fellow who gives joy to the children's life because he doesn't obey the rules, that not only is the cat in the hat a kind of, to me, a very witty choice for Marchand's favorite book, but it almost, or it didn't almost, it, it did indeed provide a map of the movie. So it, that clip comes up five times because the five narrative hinges of Cat in the Hat really are our five narrative hinges from Cat in the Hat entering the kid's world to Cat in the Hat creating trouble to Cat in the Hat leaving joy in the kid's life because he's taught them how to not obey the rules. And so basically, you know, there's this great clip. We have a brief clip from the mythologist Joseph Campbell in the film who talks about the, um, what does he call it? The, um, you know, basically the, the disruptive force that is both a court gesture and a sage person. And he, and he, he talks for some reason, I'm forgetting the term that Campbell uses, but he basically talks about how the disruptive force is both a silly and playful person and also a deadly serious person. And the deadly serious person coexists with a very playful court gesture. And that again, seems to me Marchand. So given the fact that Marchand mentions that it's his favorite book, that we triple down on it. And I think it's a fun part of oh, I love the it. film. Thanks. Because and who is the really... cat in the hat? It's interesting because if you, if you don't mind me, uh, no, please giving my own, I mean, and, and <laughs> no, it's, it's so funny. Yeah. Cause it's like, you, it's like, uh, I, I watch your movie. I get to draw conclusions that might have nothing to do with your intent, but you know, that's part of making a work of public art is people get to, of course, uh, draw their own conclusions and project their own ideas. I, I thought Cat in the Hat was actually a brilliant choice because it links, because Cat in the Hat is the opposite of Silent. Uh, he's a gregarious character who upsets uh-huh. every possible apple cart he can find. Right. And uh, and yet he's also fundamentally good. Right. And I think there, there's a great linking of the of Marchand's uh, reticence, his silence, and but yet at the same time, he's also the person who you know r- rides his go kart with his mother around the field at Calvert. Exactly. He's also the person who does the hilarious commercials. He's also the person who will play video games with Gronkowski or go on Conan O'Brien and and who jumps into the end zone holding his schwanz. Uh, it, it's <laughs> it's just such a ter- you know. So he is the cat in the hat. He upsets the apple cart um, in totally. a way that's that's in a lot of ways. Mary. Uh, totally. I think it's really, term. no, that Mary's a wonderful word. There was uh, this other review I saw of the film that was nice that says, you know, that, that liked how the film doesn't just emphasize the anger and melancholy and fury and rage and, and reticence of Lynch. It really emphasizes, I think, Lynch's joy. He's really, a, to me, a joy-generating human being, that it's a very complicated joy. It's a very melancholy joy. It's hugely culturally inscribed, you know, as deeply African-American, basically with, you know, roots in silence going back at least to 
the roots of slavery, you know, of silence as a powerful form of resistance. But he's, in a way, so much of his silence in the locker room after the game is him trying to hold on to the joy, the joy of the game for him that, you know, so much of the impulse of the media sports complex talking to players after the game is to quickly take majesty and mystery and power and violence and joy and turn it into corporate speak 30 seconds after the game, a la, um, what's her name, Aaron, um, who was the ESPN reporter who was interviewing Richard Sherman immediately after? Yeah, um, yeah Aaron, I'm forgetting her name, but anyway, Aaron somebody. But um, anyway, that just like, you know, that you've just played three hours of this unbelievably mythic experience and you're supposed to quickly turn it into uh, a, uh, a reproducible soundbite. Aaron you know, Andrews, so, I'm sorry. Aaron, yeah, Aaron Andrews. Andrews, exactly, exactly. You know, and it wasn't her fault. That's her job. But, you know, that I think part of Lynch is um, I think you're, you're right to emphasize Cat in the Hat as a joyful figure of Lynch as a complicatedly joyful figure. And to marry that to Lynch's silence, which is that, you know, part of his silence is that um, like there's that wonderful moment in the trail. I don't know if you looked at the trailer of the film, but where all the uh, announcers are, I mean, all the. The, the reporters are asking him a question and he just keeps on saying, I'm thankful, I'm thankful, I'm thankful. He refused to answer the question. But in the background is some hip hop playing and Marshawn is sort of nodding his head to the music, trying to be in touch with something that feels more alive and more real to him than the rather, you know, anodyne and predictable reporter's questions, such as, you know, how did it feel to make that wonderful run. Well, you know, how do you think it felt? It felt really good. You know, like it's something that we're all struck by. You know, how did it feel to hit the winning home run in the seventh game of the World Series and have 60,000 people cheering you? Well, like, <laughs> I don't know. How do you, I can't, you know, and then the, the player always says, you know, I don't have the words to describe it. And some of it's part of the cult, some of that we want the athlete to say that, and Marshawn even asked at the end of the film, like, like, I'm bored by these questions. How is the audience not bored by it? And it's a funny part of American sports um, broadcasts is that we always need 10 seconds of Kawhi Leonard talking after he hits his game-winning shot. Okay, Kawhi, can you give us 45 seconds of cliche that we really need that? almost to bring it back down to earth. And it's almost like Marshawn saying, sorry, I'm not bringing it back down to earth for you. I'm going to keep it within myself. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, again, we're back to freedom in many ways. Wow. We're talking with David Shields. David, you've been so generous with your time. Uh, one thing that I absolutely ask all the people I talk to is about music. And, you know, you're doing a very particular film about Marshawn, about Oakland. You come out of the Seattle scene, which has its own musical lineage. What kind of music were you listening to to get yourself in the mood to do this project or, or listen to to wind down uh, when you were done editing for the day? 
Well, that's a good question. You know, uh, what was I listening to a lot? I mean, we have this amazing music supervisor on the film, James Nugent, who's part of a band here. And he was, um, I'm trying to think of what, what were, mainly that we were listening to a lot of stuff that Marshawn listens to, to try and get ourselves into the rhythm. Uh, you know, he's a big Little Boosie fan. Um, um, Shabazz Palaces that we listened to. Um, you know, we just were, we constantly had in constant rotation, a lot of stuff. Anytime that we'd hear Marshawn mention a particular, often Oakland based group, um, even it wasn't like, for instance, I'm not a huge little Boosie fan, you know, it's super bling, bling rap, but it's, you know, anything that would get us into what felt like the, the verbal rhythm of Lynn so that we were sort of, um, in trying to get into a Marshanian mode. So for some reason, what comes up for me is um, the Oakland, I mean, the Oakland, I mean, I don't, um, Oakland based groups, Shabazz, um, and then Seattle based groups like Shabazz Palaces, and then um, Little Boosie, who I think is from somewhere in the South, New Orleans, I believe. Hmm. Wow, David Shields. Hey, how how can people? I mean, people are. are you mentioned about the film showing at the Seattle uh, Film Fest. Um, how can people though eventually see the film? People listening to this podcast, people who are in small towns, people who might right. even be in the United States. When can people expect right. to be able to see this, and how can they access it? Well, it's you know, it's um, it's going to be available on iTunes shortly uh, next month. It's going to be in Seattle, Oakland, L.A., and New York this summer, and we are hoping to have it um, available nationally in the fall. You know, we're, we're, you know, we have various people trying to, to sell it to uh, a streaming service, and that you know, it's going to be playing in various smaller cities throughout uh, the summer and fall. It's going to be in. Uh, Iowa City, in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, in Columbus, Ohio, Montpelier, Vermont, in Minneapolis, so that we're, you know, sort of a slow but steady national rollout. But it should be on iTunes as soon as this month, as uh, as next month. Oh, fantastic. Hey, uh, David Shields, terrific work on this. Lynch, Thanks so much, Dave. Really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Oh, David, I should ask, what, what's your social media so people can follow and, and stay up on what's happening with the film? Okay, I, I do. Um, well, there, the film sales agent, Cargo, has this whole social media for it, but I, the, we do, you know, Twitter, Facebook, and and Instagram. If you want, I can send you all those those links. Yeah, we'll put them up in the description okay. of the podcast. Okay, great, great. Fantastic. And, well... Thanks again, Dave. I'm very grateful. No, and next time uh, I'm out in Seattle or you're in D.C., uh, we should hit each other up. I'd love to talk to you in Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. His name is David Shields. The film is Lynch, A History. you got to see it when it's out on iTunes, everybody. Trust me on that. And we'll be back right <laughs> after this with a word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. 
Now a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, I can't believe it because it is just June of 2019, but already the 2020 election talk is up in a big way. Now most of the coverage of the 2020 elections in your typical mainstream press are all about personalities, are all about conflicts. It's almost like it's written by uh, the people like Tina Fey who wrote Mean Girls. And it's like, ooh, who said what about who, and who said what, and who's burn book, and ooh, Twitter fights, and all the rest of it. It's absurd, especially given the stakes facing our country. And frankly, given the seriousness with which some of these candidates are uh, looking at the problems that are before us. Now, The Nation magazine is where you're going to get the straight dope, the real deal, the real policies, the real debates, the real discussions. It's not from the perspective of the personalities. It's from the perspective of the problems, the massive problems that we face as a country and as a world. So please go to thenation.com, subscribe to The Nation online, subscribe to the magazine, and support independent journalism. And when you support The Nation magazine, you also support the primary sponsor of this podcast, for which we are extremely grateful. So go to thenation.com. Check out the other podcasts that the nation's offering right now. They're really impressive. Uh, Next Left with John Nichols is a terrific new podcast. Start Making Sense with uh, John Wiener is also uh, really in my rotation. And of course, check out The Edge of Sports. And now I've got some choice words. Okay, look. Toronto is a city worth treasuring, especially in these dark days of 2019. Now, I'm not just writing that because their star-crossed hoops team, the Toronto Raptors, are finally in the NBA Finals, although their appearance has supplied the occasion to write this particular mash note. I love Toronto because one only has to be there for a short time to realize that this is a city unlike no other. It has a buzz like the New York of my youth, a New York that is now as gone as Pompeii. It's like New York spiked with Minnesota nice. It's like New York with healthcare. I love Toronto because on my first night there, people tried to get me to play a pickup hockey game, which they referred to as a shinny. And all involved were very polite in explaining what that was. And frankly, I was a little freaked out. They were like, hey, you wanna go uh, do a shinny? I was like, I should probably know what that is before I say yes. It's like the pro wrestler Kevin Owens said, There are some cities that you go to that bring something out of you. Toronto is one of them. This is also a city, it must be noted, that thrums with everything that Donald Trump and his ilk would despise. It's a city of immigrants, 46% of the population according to the most recent census. A city of multiple languages, a city that like few others has the feel of cultures piling on top of one another in a way that's sprawling and unkempt and yet where the differences work in concert with one another. This team is an apt reflection of the city, and not merely because the Raptors count key players from Spain, like Marcus Gasol, Cameroon, like Pascal Siakam, and England, OG Anobi. And by the way, I'd love to be a basketball player whose first name was OG, but that's probably a separate discussion. But also because this is the first team, remarkably, that has made the NBA Finals without having one person on the roster selected in the top 10 of the NBA draft. Its highest drafted player is all-world forward Kawhi Leonard, who was selected at number 15 by the Indiana Pacers, and then of course traded immediately to the San Antonio Spurs. That factoid is fitting for this particular team because these NBA Finals offer a classic David and Goliath narrative 
with these underdog Raptors loading up their slingshot against the dynastic Golden State Warriors, a team packed with all-stars and aiming for its fourth title in five years. Now there are two ways to get players who were picked highly in the draft. You're either a terrible franchise and draft high, or you sign these one-time prospects in free agency after they prove their worth. The Raptors in recent years have been a solid club without a high draft pick. And as for free agency, this is a team that has historically had a great deal of trouble finding free agents to come to the six. Many are told by their agents and business managers that Toronto is just not the place to go, that taxes, weather, and living in a different country make the team radioactive. But when general manager Masai Ujiri, born in England, family from Nigeria, had the chance to trade the most popular player in team history, DeMar DeRozan, for superstar Kawhi Leonard, even though Leonard had only one year left on his contract and could potentially leave after free agency, he took the damn risk. Now that risk can possibly result in a championship for Toronto and an opportunity to turn a hockey city and a hockey country, what columnist Bruce Arthur calls a monoculture when it comes to sports, into a place where basketball has a home. Kawhi Leonard has been positively Jordan-esque in these playoffs and has captured the imaginations of the most hardened hockey fans. Now for those who still think that this will never be a hoops town, it is where Serge Ibaka, home country of the Congo Republic, a reserve of the team, walked into a restaurant in a viral clip and the entire restaurant burst into a standing ovation. And try to find that clip, it's amazing. It's Serge Ibaka walking into a little dim sum joint in Toronto and all of a sudden he's getting the standing O. Toronto is where I believe your heart should lie if you are otherwise without a rooting interest. Now I'm thinking what we're looking at is an upset. The Raptors have home court advantage and I think that is one hell of an advantage. The fans are hungry. The players match their intensity. I wrote this down and tweeted it before these finals started. Take the Raptors in seven. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey everybody out there, this is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports Podcast. People gotta know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it, but we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, Back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award actually runs counter to the choice words that it's a member of the Golden State Warriors. Probably my favorite member of the Golden State Warriors, Iggy himself, Andre Iguodala. Andre Iguodala recently did an interview with Bleacher Reports, and this is what he said. I just want to read the quote. He said, Historically, capitalist America says you have to be cutthroat to make capital gains. In order to eat, you have to kill. In order to make money, someone has to lose money. Even on the court, there's the Mamba mentality. I think sports and business take you further away from the human being aspect of life. That's what I feel more than anything. Man, I'm not a human being anymore. That's where my struggle is." 
Big shout out to Andre Iguodala. I just love it when people link sports, big business, and capitalism as being one three-headed beast that's intertwined in and of itself. Sports, capitalism, big business, you cannot separate these things. They are one and the same. And for a professional basketball player who's had the success that Iguodala has had, speak about the influence, the negative influence that some of these factors have had on his life, that definitely runs against the dominant narrative, that runs against the script, that allows us to think more clearly about what we're watching and what his teammates perhaps are playing. So big shout out to Andre Iguodala. You win the Just Stand Up Award. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Your ass down. It goes to some of the fans in the world of Spanish soccer. This is what a Spanish soccer team that's heavily uh, composed of migrants has had to do to protest against the racial abuse that they've received. The players of a team called Alma de Africa, which means soul of Africa, have had to wear shirts that have the insults that are hurled at them printed on their back instead of their names. The team is based in the southern Spanish city of Jerez de la Frontera and plays in a minor regional uh, league. Now, the team has players from Nigeria, Morocco, the Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, Togo, Senegal, Cameroon, Mauritania, all over. And the names that they've had to put on the back of their jersey are just some like absolutely awful slurs. And the fact that they feel compelled that they have to do this really makes me believe that all the fans in this league, or at least the ones who are hurling these slurs, need to sit their asses down. You gotta see the picture. I mean, words like sin papeles, that means without papers, uh, indio, uh, negro, gitano, immigrante, sudaca, gorilla, negrata, esclavo. Um, these, these are words that are used to dehumanize and destroy and they deserve their own just stand up award for taking the pitch wearing those words as a way of putting it right back in the fans face but the fans need to actually see what these players are trying to say and they need to sit their asses down One last quick word here on the Edge of Sports podcast, Kaepernick Watch, where we talk about the latest comings and goings of Colin Kaepernick. This week he sent a retweet from Amir Loggins, where um, Amir, who is uh, in so many ways uh, the political and historical voice of the Know Your Rights camps that Colin Kaepernick puts on, I should say Dr. Amir Loggins, congratulations getting that PhD uh, from UC Berkeley. Uh, it was a tweet where, and his Twitter is at left sent this, uh, which is a great Twitter account. Uh, he made the point that the progressive Bay Area NFL teams have opened their arms to MAGA maggot, that's how he put it, Nick Bosa and Richie, I openly call teammates the N-word incognito. Meanwhile, Kaepernick's blackballing from the NFL during the prime of his career was for the crime of wanting black folks to stay alive and I think that's an important point and I'm glad that uh, Colin Kaepernick and his folks are picking up on it is that the signing by the Oakland Raiders of Richie Incognito uh, is such a slap in the face to Colin Kaepernick and it's fascinating because Richie Incognito is somebody who last he was in the news uh, he was throwing weights at somebody in a weight room a year ago speaking about how the government had infiltrated his ear pods 
and was trying to uh, read his mind and that he was somehow a special agent. I mean, stuff that, I mean, Richie Incognito's never actually, you know, been rocking the full six-pack, but uh, he is somebody who clearly has been done a lot of damage between his ears through playing offensive line in the NFL on top of his odious beliefs that exist independently of that. Uh, And the fact that Richie Incognito is getting yet another chance in the National Football League, another chance in the National Football League, while Colin Kaepernick remains blackballed out, it just says something about how NFL owners... Uh, are able to organize themselves and draw a line in the sand when it comes to behavior they don't appreciate. But the behavior they don't appreciate has nothing to do with the incredibly disgusting and destructive antisocial behavior of Richie Incognito and has everything to do with trying to save black lives, which of course the NFL has never been in the business of promoting. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for David Shields. Everybody's got to check out this film when it's out. It's called Lynch, A History. Thank you so much, everybody listening. Please go to our Patreon page. We need the support. I know a lot of y'all listen to this show. Go to patreon.com slash edgesportspod and support the production of this podcast. Uh, And also... Something you can do for free is go to iTunes, write a little comment about the podcast, give it a rating. All that stuff makes a huge difference. For everybody out there listening, we are out of here. Peace.
Wilson, you sent the game-winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 4.55 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free. That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.